0: Chumbacasino.com. Jumba. No by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Website for details.
2: Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
1: In the movie Don't Look Up, humans are unable to mobilize and protect civilization from a massive comet headed for Earth. In fact, some refuse to look at it at all. In the film, society faces a threat from the so called planet killer, but it also faces a deadline six months and a couple of weeks before it slams into the Earth. There's enough time to act and prevent annihilation from the menace hurling through space, yet people can't seem to get it together to stop the rock and save themselves. Well, our climate crisis has been defined by consecutive deadlines over the years, even decades. We've met some but seem to have ignored most of them. The consequence of inaction? Well, our more frequent and devastating wildfires, flooding events, record-breaking heatwaves. We didn't act when climate deadlines seemed years away. But now that we've blown past many of those deadlines, a feeling of futility is keeping us from acting. We still have a chance to stave off the worst effects of climate change. What will motivate us if deadlines don't? This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly
3: Bentley. In this episode, why the accelerated melt of an Antarctic glacier is worth paying close attention to, how some scientists feel that the ignore-at-our-peril attitude in the movie Don't Look Up captures the madness of collective inaction, and a psychologist says that climate anxiety is now a real thing, but also why all hope is not lost. This episode of Big Picture Science is Melting Down.
1: To begin this episode, we'll start at the bottom, that is Antarctica, where climate scientists and their instruments are focused on a melting, massive chunk of ice on the continent's western side. The Thwaites Glacier is one of the biggest on Earth.
4: It's about 120 kilometers across, right? Not something you're going to easily hike across, run across, swim across, etc. And it's roughly the size of Florida. Climate
3: scientists have long monitored the Thwaites Glacier for its potential to raise sea levels.
4: It's right down there at the South Pole on the edge of the continent of Antarctica with its feet on land under the water. And and it's enormous. If it all melted, slid into the ocean, this would be significant.
1: The glacier is a giant drainage basin that flows from the land to the sea. You can imagine it like this. In front of the Thwaites Glacier is the Amundsen Sea, to which it drains. Behind it lies the Antarctic ice sheet, which empties to the ocean via the glacier. The glacier also helps anchor the ice sheet.
3: Scientists are monitoring a key section of the glacier, the third of it that floats on the water, no longer grounded on rock. This section, a tongue of ice extending beyond land, is called the ice shelf. The Thwaites Ice Shelf acts like a dam, slowing the glacier's flow into the sea. So the ice shelf holds back the glacier, which helps hold back the ice
1: sheet. Here's why scientists are alarmed. Warm water under the ice shelf is softening the ice. So enormous cracks are forming across nearly its entire expanse. A lot of glacial ice, including ice on land, could suddenly head for the ocean if the ice shelf collapses.
3: Antarctic scientists liken this to Driving with a few cracks in your windshield, the windshield holds until your car hits a big bump, and then the whole pane of glass shatters.
4: Hi, I'm Joellen Russell. I'm a professor here at the University of Arizona, and I use supercomputers, robot floats, and satellites to try and predict the future of our climate. It's not just one glacier. This one is big and it's moving faster than others. However, it's sort of a canary in our climate coal mine, because if this one goes, more of Antarctica is gonna go. And there are meters and meters and meters of sea level rise locked up on top of
1: the land right now, and it could hit our ocean. And so the Thwaites Glacier is nicknamed the Doomsday Glacier. Scientists presented research at a fall 2021 geophysical meeting that put the estimate for when the glacier will collapse at five to ten years, but possibly as soon as three years.
3: It's worrisome, and if you're feeling anxiety about it, you are not the only one. Later in the show, we'll talk about the intense psychological impact of climate change and why that, paradoxically, may be a step forward. But first, speaking of moving forward how the Melting Thwaites Glacier could reshape coastlines
4: globally. If we add more water by melting this ice, this massive glacier, into our ocean, it's like having a very full drink and then adding an ice cube.
1: <laughs> All right, but isn't it the case that if you you know, put an ice cube in your drink and let it melt... Actually, the level of water doesn't change. Isn't that Archimedes' principle? That is true if you're not adding that
4: ice cube from outside the glass. If you fill up, if you put your ice cubes in first and then fill the glass, when the ice cubes melt, it's not going to make it overflow because it's already displaced. Like you say, Archimedes. However, what I'm talking about is filling your glass all the way to the top and building your beach house right there next to the beach cause you know, you want the shortest distance to the ocean and then take a massive ice cube off the land, you know, outside of your glass, have it all the way full and then plop that sucker in. It's gonna make it overflow. And if the whole thing fell into the ocean It would raise sea level by about 65 centimeters which is more than half a meter so uh wherever your waist is roughly that much just this one big glacier hanging out in antarctica so it's a big
1: deal well all right you're talking about a sea rise of you know a couple of feet something like that order of magnitude yes okay You know a couple of foot difference in the surface of the pacific out here you know i certainly personally wouldn't notice any difference it sounds like a fairly minimal amount to me
4: okay so daytime flooding we're already getting in places like miami where the water is basically flooding in already so now imagine raising it by two to three feet You raise that by three feet and more of Miami is underwater.
1: You know, there are other parts of the world, I mean, you know, Bangladesh and places like that, I I suppose the big cities would be wiped out or at least threatened. At least threatened.
4: And it makes our extreme events much more dangerous. I mean, really seriously, you have a big storm, it's already big, and you basically raise sea level, making it easier for them to overtop levees, making it easier for a big storm to flood further inland, to dump more water, and to get over sandbags and around prevention. So it's very serious.
1: Now, reading in the newspaper about the Thwaites Glacier, how come it's in the news now? I mean, it's been sitting there for... You know, many millions of years. Why why is it I mean, is it on the move, or is it melting or what what's going on?
4: See, this is the thing is most people don't understand that the atmosphere has only absorbed about 3% of the energy imbalance created by all these, all these emissions. Our carbon dioxide pollution blanket that's trapping more of the warming. So we see it's warming. I live in Tucson. I'm in Arizona. I'm in the third fastest warming city in the nation. And I can't walk my dogs in the summer after 5 a.m., because it's too hot and they'll burn their little baby feet. So with this warming, only about 3% of that energy imbalance is warming the atmosphere. 93% is warming the ocean. And that glacier has its feet. It is standing on the bottom of the shelf of the ocean. It's underwater. And the problem is, is that sure, it's very cold still in Antarctica, even though it's warming, but the heat capacity. Now imagine that instead of putting your ice cube into a Coca-Cola, you put that ice cube into hot cocoa. That's what's happening. You just stuck your glacier that's been sitting there for a while is now being exposed to waters that are much, much warmer than they used to be, and the water has a profound profoundly bigger heat capacity than the air and it's melting like crazy
1: all right it's not that all of a sudden you know the the warmth will get to this thing and it'll all sort of melt in five years is that the worry or is it the worry is the worry that it is anchored it's kept in place by you know rock underneath it at least part of it they call uh, it a
4: buttress Basically, the ice is stuck to the bottom, just like the Shark Cathedral, right, in France, where they put these big blocks that basically hold the cathedral together. Well, this, this, uh, these toes of the glacier that are stuck into the mud and the dirt and the rock on the bottom are basically, uh, so it's not just melting like at the top, it's melting right where the, where the doorstop is keeping it from sliding into the ocean.
1: That's why we're worried. Okay, let me see if I understand this. You've got fresh water in this big glacier, and it, you know, slowly melts or slides into the sea, which, of course, is salt water. Fresh water is less dense than salt water. Salt water is a couple of percent denser because it's got all that salt in it. And so this is sort of like a lid of fresh water you put over the salty water, right? You're saying it's like a blanket on top of me during sleep. It's keeping that heat trapped, right?
4: That's right. Normally, the ocean will move water towards warm water that's warm near the surface in the tropics will eventually, through currents, move to the high latitudes, to so the polar regions, and then release that heat, which is why we don't have ice all the way to you know texas it's basically we're transporting heat towards the poles both in the atmosphere and in the ocean now if you melt a whole (laughs) you melt all this ice and you put it on top of the ocean so that it can't mix the deeper waters to the surface and release that heat to the atmosphere you're basically monkeying with the function of the ocean on planet earth and that's a lot of heat transport. And that heat is being trapped up next to the toes of the glacier that are dug into the dirt, the rock there. And that's why we think not only is it gonna move faster even yet than it has already, but that uh, that, that melt will, uh, will continue. And the more it melts, the more likely we are to cap that heat, the more likely you are to warm right at the feet of the glaciers. It's a, it's a positive feedback, accelerating the melt, accelerating the slide.
1: I don't know it's it's kind of a remarkable thing how fragile is the balance that we have for the weather systems uh, and all the effects that are coupled to the ocean are. I mean we're talking about a couple of degrees centigrade Fahrenheit what's the diff factor at 2 uh, but it's only a couple of degrees and yet it threatens Everything.
4: I mean, everybody keeps talking about that atmospheric warming of a degree or two and they go, well, that's not any big deal. I'm like, yeah, that's three percent of the problem. Hello. I'm an oceanographer. It's when we go out at this point, there isn't anywhere in the ocean you can go and say, oh, it's cooler. No, it isn't. Absolutely. It isn't. And every time the water warms, it expands. So about half of the sea level rise we've seen so far is actually just due to the expansion of the water through warming, and it continues to warm. It has impacts on our weather patterns. I mean, who thinks that Hurricane Harvey would have dumped that much rain on Houston without a supercharged ocean heat layer that was basically just saying, here, take it, dump it on land it is really hot out there our robot floats these are argo floats they're so much fun they're you know they keep doing profiles every 10 days they do about 250 of them before they die and the new ones we have are actually looking at the ph and the oxygen and the nitrate which is plant food you know how is the ocean breathing how much carbon dioxide is it taking up so We're looking at planetary scale reorganization of certain systems. It's affecting our jet stream, our polar vortex. It's affecting basically every single person in our 7 billion plus, you know, human population. Everybody, everybody would like to know not just a weather forecast, but uh, is my house safe? Is my business safe? Are my kids safe? How soon is this going to happen? Is there anything we can do to prevent it? If we can't prevent it, can we mitigate it? I mean, can we adapt to it? And there are certain places where we may not be able to adapt. Where and So personally, I bet you didn't know this. Here's, here's your upbeat piece of news for the day. Can I, can I tell you?
1: Well, I don't know if I could handle it, but yes, do
4: tell me. Did you know that the United States' peak emissions of carbon dioxide were in 2007? We have come down 20% off our peak emissions as a nation since 2007. And not just come down 20%, but we grew our population and our GDP at the same time. And we've been coming down. And those were mostly just individuals and businesses making good, wise decisions and investments to save a buck and the planet at the same time.
1: Joellen Russell, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
4: You're very welcome. What a
3: delight. Joellen Russell is an oceanographer and a climate scientist at the University of Arizona. An enormous glacier is poised for collapse, but there is still time to act to stave off the worst effects of climate change. Will we make the most of it?
1: Well, replace the melting glacier with a careening comet headed for Earth, and you basically have this setup for the movie Don't Look Up. Why did watching it make so many scientists feel seen? I spent my New Year's Eve watching Don't Look Up, and I have some thoughts and feelings about
5: it, but honestly, mostly feelings. <laughs> It felt very familiar to what I see often happening with scientists' media interactions. That's next. Plus, later in the
3: show, how climate anxiety is sending people to the therapist's couch and also where hope lies in all of this. This episode of Big Picture Science is melting down. Hi, Molly here. As we were putting together this week's episode about climate change, Seth and I had a conversation about the movie Don't Look Up. And we are offering it as bonus content for our Patreon supporters. And this could be you if you're not already a supporter. You support science journalism by supporting Big Picture Science, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and signing up. It's easy. If you become a Patreon supporter at the $5 level, you can listen to my discussion with Seth about Don't Look Up, and hear where our opinions agree and part ways. Of course, there's other bonus content on our Patreon site for you to check out, too. So please take a moment to support Big Picture Science beginning at that $5 level, and you'll keep the show going. And as a bonus... Well, you can be a fly on the wall to our conversation about the movie Don't Look Up. That is, if flies listen to such things. Again, it's easy to be a Patreon supporter. Just go to patreon.com bigpicturescience and sign up. Thank you.
1: If you haven't yet seen the movie Don't Look Up, I don't think this discussion will spoil your viewing experience. In the movie, people are just not able to absorb an uncomfortable fact. Earth is about to be hit by a large comet, a planet killer.
5: I heard there's an asteroid or a comet or something that, that you don't like the looks of.
1: <sighs> tell me about it and then tell me why you're telling me about it. You got 20 minutes. Humans have six months to deal with this extinction level event. And there's nothing like a deadline to focus the mine. Only in Don't Look Up, the countdown to impact focuses only a few mines. The response from the vast majority of the public, as well as the government, is meh, a global shrug.
3: Sound familiar? Don't Look Up, of course, is not really about dithering in the face of a killer rock from space, but a metaphor for the madness of another collective in action. Some scientists had a very strong reaction to the film. They said it was as if the movie
5: was in their head. And not only climate change scientists. My name is Katie Mack. I'm an assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State University. We've talked in the past to Dr. Mack about her book, Describing the Fate of the Universe, called
3: The End of Everything. And we contacted her again when we read her tweets about the movie.
5: Yeah, I said, uh, I spent my New Year's Eve watching Don't Look Up, and I have some thoughts and feelings about it, but honestly, mostly feelings.
1: Feelings about the difficulty of trying to explain complicated, even unpleasant science, to a distracted public. Well it turns out cosmologists feel it too.
5: Yeah, so there's a scene in the film where one of the astronomers is telling, you know, giving him tips about talking to the media, and he says, you're telling a story, keep it simple, no math. And then the astronomer looks sort of baffled and says, but it's all math.
1: I just feel like this isn't what I do, you know?
3: You're just telling
5: a story. Keep it simple. No math. But it's all math. And I quoted that part because I've I've been in that position before where I've been told, you know, just to to keep it at a general level, don't talk about any of the math. And and when you're a physicist, it really is often all math. And so you have to find different ways to to communicate that without just throwing equations around.
3: Now you said that you had a lot of thoughts about this film, but mainly feelings. What were the feelings? Mm. Can you describe them for us?
5: So From the perspective of a scientist who often talks to the media, there were a lot of scenes where I was sort of cringing on behalf of everybody in the film, because there are many places where the scientists are trying to communicate something. They're not able to speak in a way that that the media understand and the media are trying to get something else out of the scientists, not you know, sort of facts and figures, but they're trying to tell a story for their own purpose for the the entertainment. And that kind of talking past each other and having different motivations, it felt very familiar to what I see often happening with scientists media interactions. And so I definitely had feelings about that. And then there was, you know, of course, a lot in the film about the difficulty of communicating something to people when, when it's something that they don't want to hear and that means that they will have to change something about their lifestyle. Okay, let's bottom line this. What is this gonna cost me, you know? What's the ask here?
0: We must act now. Oh, hey, all
5: right, all right, all right, all right. When are the midterms? Three weeks. Three weeks, so if this breaks before then, we lose Congress, and then there's nothing we can do about it anyway.
6: It'll be gridlocked.
5: Timing—it's just—it's atrocious. And when there's a lot of motivated reasoning on behalf of the recipients of the information, how incredibly difficult or impossible it is to to get the message across in a way that people will actually, you know, internalize.
1: I just have a question here: How is it criminal if we just tell people, like the public? you know, what we saw and tell them the truth. Make sure this one gets some kind of media training before he hits the shows, he seems a step slow.
3: Now, we can understand how this would be the case with climate change and the movie is a parable for climate change, but Mm. you're an astrophysicist. Have you found situations Mm -hmm. where you can't tell the public the truth about about your science?
5: I mean, I I feel that I always tell the truth. I, you know, I, I don't ever try and lie to anybody. I do feel that sometimes it is quite difficult to get something across if, if it's not what people want to hear. And that comes up when I talk about you know the improbability of aliens contacting us, for example, uh, based on what we know about how planets work and how interstellar travel works and how interstellar communication might work. It's just not very likely. And that's something that not everybody wants to hear. Um, And, uh, you know, I wrote a book about the end of the universe. The universe is changing, Uh, in some sense it's dying. A lot of times people don't really wanna hear that. Um, And I work on dark matter, which is uh, some kind of invisible stuff that holds galaxies together. And a lot of people don't like the idea that there's something invisible out there and there must be some other explanation. And, you know, dark matter must be just something we made up to fix the math and it, it can't possibly be real. And they feel the same about dark energy how do you couch it then? Do you change your attitude, your
3: energy? Do you change the words and sort of avoid the technical language and try to stay upbeat when you're describing the end of the universe, which of course <laughs> we should say is a long ways off, right? Uh, yes, but, but almost, ha- certainly. almost certainly. How do you do it? Because you're
4: really
5: good at it. Um, do you have uh, thank you. any idea what your tricks are? Um, well, with something like The End of the Universe, fortunately, it's, it's so far off that it's it's really kind of an abstract terror in the sense that it doesn't actually mean you have to do anything about it. And that's so that, that that's helpful in a sense, because it's not threatening anybody's current life or lifestyle. I do use a lot of humor uh, in those kinds of discussions, because I think that 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 helps a lot to uh, for people to have some have some other emotion about it rather than just the bleakness and when i talk about any kind of technical subject i use a lot of analogies to help people you know put something in the context of their everyday experience it's interesting that the beginning
3: part of your description of how to prepare the mind to face the end of the universe actually sounded like the description of climate change 20 or 30 years ago, that it's so far off, it's an abstract terror, I think you said, Mm. and we don't have to do anything. Mm. Uh, We don't have to act against it. And the role of abstraction and the role of deadlines comes up in the film. We have plenty Mm. of deadlines in the film. I think the comet is coming toward Earth in six months, in in a couple weeks. Yeah. But people still cannot focus on the climate change threat. And do you have any insight as to why that is.
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that I think that part of it is is a kind of optimism, you know, this idea that well, we'll figure it out eventually. You know, we know that technology is improving all the time. There's kind of this optimism, maybe, you know, some technical solution will appear. You know, if it's really going to happen in 50 years, that things are going to be really bad in 50 years, who knows what we what kind of tools we might have. Maybe down the road we'll figure it out the idea that we actually have to act now to get to the point where we're okay in 50 years um, is very difficult. And so, you know, this this idea that you have to deprive yourself of something now or change your lifestyle now for the sake of something that's 50 years away, maybe it won't even happen. um, That's a really difficult thing to ask of people. And that people don't feel it is an immediate threat even as you know it is happening now you know it's changing the way that we experience hurricanes and heat waves and flooding and all of these kinds of things and then there are you know parts of the world where it's it's really destroying lives it's interesting that you brought up the role of
3: analogy that you use analogies mm. in order to get the science across because the whole film don't look up was really an analogy or a parable yeah. for climate change. Yeah. And Katie, why is it that we can focus on threats from space, maybe you have some insight into <laughs> this, aliens or killer comets, better than we can threats unfolding here on Earth? Why does this work as an analogy, in other words?
5: I mean, I think I think it's just a much more concrete thing. We We understand the idea that if you hit something with a rock, bad things happen to that thing.
6: Are we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the
5: entire planet is about to be destroyed. And we we know that on Earth, you know, back in the day of the dinosaurs, a big rock hit us and bad things happened. We know there was massive extinction, changed the climate of the Earth. Like, you know, it was really quick and, and violent and very, very concrete. Climate change is complicated. It's just, it's just inherently complicated. And atmospheric science is very complicated. And so it's a matter of, you know, there's this mysterious thing that goes on with the scientists, you know, the scientists are putting information into some kind of computer modeling, and they're doing a bunch of graphs and equations, and you have to kind of trust what they tell you from that. And that's, that's a lot harder than just like, there is a rock and it's coming. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, that's a very clear thing, even though, the level of certainty that climate scientists have right now is really, really high. I mean, as good as the orbital parameters we have for asteroids, I mean, we really know what's happening to the climate. But uh, because it's complex, because it's not easy to visualize, it requires a level of trust in in scientists that um, you know maybe a lot of people have some trouble with when when there is that additional pressure of. If I believe this thing, that means my life has to change, and and I really don't want my life to change, so I better be really, really sure that what those scientists are saying is true. And it's real easy to talk yourself out of it. Katie Mack, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. It's fun to talk about this sort of thing.
1: Katie Mack is a professor of physics at North Carolina State University. She's also the author of The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking you know that's that's a real threat and in that sense it's sort of like climate change but climate change was presented as something that would happen in the future right short term future a few decades and whenever you tell the public that i think a lot of them just tune out because oh i don't have to worry about that for a while
3: yeah but what's funny is in the film the deadline was 6 months away and people still didn't want to focus on the threat
1: <laughs> well well that's true uh, but you know at least there the threat was an immediate thing everything would be fine 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 and then suddenly bam and it's not fine and climate change is a little different it's you know slowly getting worse
3: Well, certainly deadlines are supposed to focus the mind, but when it comes to climate change, a number of deadlines have slipped by. So will we meet the goal of cutting global emissions in half by 2030 or going carbon neutral by 2050? Well, if we don't, maybe it's because the deadlines still seem distant, as Dr. Max said. But it may also be that if we feel we're not going to meet a deadline, a sense of futility sets in.
1: Take, for example, the goal of limiting average temperatures to one and a half degrees. I mean, that was part of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, and we're not on track to meet that goal. So what do we do? Do we say, okay, we're gonna surpass the goal and the world's gonna go away? Do we give up?
3: One scientist says, of course not. And she has the big picture perspective on that.
6: Hi, I'm Dr. Jessica Tierney from the University of Arizona, and I am a paleoclimatologist. Fancy word for someone who studies ancient climate changes.
1: So what she's saying is that we've been here before. We can learn about what would happen with a few degrees warming by studying what happened a few million years ago.
6: Where we're at now and where we're headed into the future is a warmer climate. Now with CO2 levels at or above 400 parts per million, those are levels that we haven't seen in 3 million years. So if we go back in time, we can see how sea levels rise under higher CO2 as ice sheets melt, how drought changes, all those sorts of things.
1: And so Dr. Tierney, who is uniquely qualified to understand how the Earth responds to each uptick in CO2 levels, says that when it comes to feeling the stress of not crossing the bright red line of 1.5 degrees Celsius, she wants us to all take a breath.
6: So I think there's a little bit of a misconception out there that the 1.5 level represents some kind of cliff. And if we pass that cliff, somehow, you know, everything will break down. There's no evidence that that is the case. There aren't these sort of cliffs when we talk about climate change. So climate change is incremental. But the key, the reason that that number has been thrown out there is it's sort of trying to motivate governments to take action, to take steps to reduce their emissions. And governments like targets, right? They like to have some sort of target. And so it serves as a target, but... I think you know the unintended consequence is that there's this, you know, this feeling that it's also like this cliff.
3: It's interesting that you use the word motivation, and I'm wondering what your assessment is of these thresholds as motivation for either politicians or the public. So, have they worked as motivators?
6: You know, the 1.5 came out of the an entire special report that the IPCC did on on what 1.5 degrees sea of warming does. So there's a whole report about that, right? And that was really a request from some nations, some of the smaller island nations who were really worried about sea level rise and didn't feel comfortable if warming went beyond that level. And so there was this whole report. So I think it has a place, but, you know, the, the backlash again has been this obsession with that number as a cliff. And that isn't how climate change works. You know, it's incremental. With every additional degree of warming, you get an incremental change in precipitation patterns, in the changes in drought, in the changes in storms. So everything just scales, right?
3: It sounds like the focusing on this number and the emphasis on the number, for some people, it's translated into not just this sense of doom, but a sense of futility. What is the point of even trying if we're going to pass this number? And that's that's one of the big problems of this messaging.
6: I agree. We don't want to we don't want to send out the message that we should just give up because we don't want to give up. You know, we want to keep trying. We have to keep trying.
3: I'm wondering then if we're going to have a re messaging. Is it the job of the scientists or the job of the journalists?
6: I think it's both. I think both communities have to work together on that front because ultimately the 1.5 you know and 2 and other thresholds come from the science community right trying to give government something to look at to make decisions on so we do have a responsibility there at the same time the media also needs to you know be careful not to sort of stir up these sort of doomsday scenarios beyond not being scientifically accurate, you know, contributes to that feeling of despair. So I really think both communities have to work together. On on my side as a scientist, I try not to focus on thresholds of global warming. I simply show that with each additional increment of global warming, the changes get more extreme, right? We will have more extreme droughts and floods, but that it's a continuum. That's how I approach the messaging. So what I want to remind people is there is hope. One of the things that gives me hope is climate science, and also the great folks out there working on climate solutions who are coming up with you know really innovative ways to tackle the problem. And of course, you know, government leadership and social leadership. Ultimately, we need governments on board to fight climate change. Uh, it's a sort of high-level problem, so you need policies put in place. So you know, social movements, things that we can do, even. Simple things like voting for candidates that are going to take action. All that stuff really matters. And so I think it's really important to stay politically active. I mean, I know a lot of people don't have um, a lot of faith in the political system either, uh, but it is important to stay active. You know, it can be okay. It's definitely a huge problem and we wish that we didn't have it, but there's things that we can do.
3: I like ending on a moment of hope. Jessica Tierney, thank you so much for talking to us.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: Jessica Tierney is a paleoclimatologist at the University of Arizona. Okay, so the climate scientists, they set this target, one and a half degrees rise in global temperatures. And as she notes, you know, governments really like targets, but she also notes that this establishes a a cliff As if, you know, you go to one point four nine degrees, everything's just hunky dory. You go to one point five degrees and suddenly we fall off a cliff. Well it's not a cliff, it's a slope. Changes are incremental. We're we're walking downhill slowly.
3: Well, having her put things into perspective helps, especially now that we're feeling the psychological impacts of climate change.
1: Next, Generation Z gives voice to climate anxiety and the psychologists who predicted its arrival. Also more reasons to have hope. This episode
3: of Big Picture Science is melting down
1: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Seth here. When I first heard Gary, our lead producer, talking about Patreon, I thought it was one of those little-known elements from the nether reaches of the periodic table named after a small village in Sweden where Patreon was first found sometime in the 19th century. Well, most of you have had undoubtedly the same thought, but of course, Patreon is an app that makes it possible for us to keep Big Picture Science coming your way. If you haven't yet become a BiPiSci Patreon member, why tempt fate? Why not avoid the opprobrium of Astute Society by going to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience now? If you do so, you'll get some goodies in return. For example, donate $5 a month and you'll get some exclusive access to bonus material, like the discussion Molly and I had offline about the movie Don't Look Up. So put your money where your ears are, patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. You'll feel better about yourself and better about those small towns in Sweden. That's patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. We really do appreciate your support. It's not an overstatement to say that how we address the climate crisis has wide-reaching implications for life on our planet, for the next few hundred years at least.
3: It affects the survival of many species, of the Amazon rainforest and coral reefs. It determines the fate of low-lying countries, whether it will have sufficient food and water, and whether entire ecosystems will collapse. Reports of what's at stake increasingly dire and increasingly frequent dominate the news and social media from Twitter to TikTok and are having a powerful psychological impact, particularly on the young. My name is
2: Susan Clayton, professor of psychology at the College of Worcester. I would say if you're feeling anxious and it's due to changes in the climate, then yes, that's climate anxiety.
0: My name is Willa Rowe, I am 24 and I am a journalism student at Columbia University. Hi, my name's Susanna Graneri. I'm 22 and I'm a journalism student at Columbia University. Can you tell me a little bit about how climate anxiety kind of manifests for you? Yeah, um, for me climate anxiety is something that kind of comes up a lot when I, you know, read the news or doom scroll and stuff like that. And for me it's almost so big that it's almost negligible where there's still nothing that I feel like I as an individual can do.
2: TikTok doesn't
0: help. <laughs> TikTok doesn't help. Do you feel like climate change has factored into your life decisions up until this point? Um, I wouldn't say that, but I would say being in New York City, it's definitely like a different type of air. And I think that the hotter it gets or, you know, the different changes in our environment affect the air quality, especially in New York. Mm-hmm. And I feel that I grew up skating, um, ice skating on a lake near my house. And the last couple of years it hasn't frozen over, even though that was like my childhood activity. So I want to live somewhere where it does get that cold in the winter so I could do that again. I think it kind of ties into like the idea of, you know, how big it is in the existentialism where I'm of two minds. Sometimes I think, you know, most of our lives we've been told from a young age Like, okay, plan what you want to do for your future. Like, what do you want to, what do you want your job to be? You need to have like a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan. But like, as news will report more and more where it's like, well, maybe we only have maybe 20 years left, then what's the point of a 20-year plan? Because it will be purposeless. Like, why should I be working towards something if it's just going to go away? But then again, the world itself still operates like the world will go on. So I have to live in that world. So I will keep going Mm -hmm. until I guess it just
5: (laughs) ends.
1: (laughs) That was our assistant producer, Shannon Rose Geary, talking to friends about climate anxiety.
3: Susan, you published a paper. Well, you published two papers, but let's talk about the most recent first. And it was titled young people's voices on climate anxiety and it was published in the lancet in the fall of 2021 the largest study of climate
2: anxiety in young people to date what did you find well what we found was that young people were were anxious they said that it was affecting their ability to function their ability to to sleep or to work or to have fun and they expressed some really negative beliefs about the impacts climate change might have on their futures.
3: What was the age range of the young people that you, you surveyed,
2: just the definition of young here? Yes, it was 16 to 25. So we're, we're not talking to young children, but to adolescents and young adults. And what sorts of things are young people saying? Or what what did they say to you as part of this study? This was a survey study. We, had to, we collected data online, as you can imagine, you have to if you're going to study 10,000 people so we didn't um, have a chance to really ask them questions that would get detailed answers the questions we asked them to respond to were things like do you agree or disagree with the following people have failed to take care of the planet Um, my future will be less good than my parents things that i value are threatened because of climate change Um, and i'm hesitant to have children because of climate change so these are some of the statements that were endorsed in in many cases by a majority of respondents Mm-hmm. And in fact, they felt that um, the adults had abandoned them. I believe the word betrayal also came up. Yes. And this is pre- specifically, we asked them about governmental response and we we didn't ask them about their own governments, but just governments in general. And they expressed feelings of betrayal. They did not, they were not happy with governmental response. They felt that the government was not acting on the basis of science or protecting people or telling the truth to a large extent. And I think that that is also part of the young people's response, that sense that the people who are supposed to be responsible for taking care of things are not doing it. Can you give us an overview of just what
3: some of the emotions
2: that are associated with climate anxiety and also how it manifests itself? Um, Well, sure, in terms of emotions, it's a very complex constellation of emotions. People may feel anger, they may feel fear, they may feel grief. Um, And they may, in fact, also feel things like hope and interest or optimism. That interests me in your paper that the emotion of
3: hope was included, not something that we associate with anxiety. How does hope
2: manifest itself? Well, I think it's important to recognize that, in fact, you can feel both positive and negative emotions. And we weren't able to dig into this with that sample. But in just listening to young climate activists, they often talk about, They're certainly anxious. They're certainly angry and distressed and sad, but they also feel hope partly because of their opportunities to um, to talk to each other, to talk to other people, to have an impact and to organize. So there can really be that that positive component as well. You also wrote or concluded that climate anxiety presents
3: itself with long term stressors, a chronic condition. What are the consequences of that? In what ways is it manifesting itself? Uh, sleeplessness, insomnia, could be a number of things.
2: Yes, absolutely, it can. And let me say that um, climate anxiety in itself, I would not say, is a disorder. It's uh, it's normal to be anxious about a problem as as significant and dangerous as climate change. But it can become it can threaten mental health. So it could be that it impairs your emotional functioning. You feel sad all the time. You cry. It could impact behavioral functioning. You can't sleep very well. You can't uh, do your work. Is there any precedent for this kind of widespread societal anxiety in your experience or in your understanding of history? This is before my time, but um, the when we had real widespread fear of nuclear war, and you know, children were being taught to duck and hide under their desks. There, there were some similarities to that. The results of your study are remarkable in themselves,
3: in that it may be the first study that some people are hearing about climate anxiety, and maybe the first time they're hearing this term. But of course, it's not the first time you've thought about the psychological consequences of our changing climate. A decade ago, you wrote a paper with a colleague and proposed that climate change would have a powerful psychological impact. And I'm wondering, Susan, although it was speculative, what was your paper a decade ago based on?
2: Well, we were thinking about what does climate change actually mean to people, and 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 we, of course, were already hearing people talk. You know, people were worried a decade ago. Uh, people were expressing emotional responses. And what does it mean to think about a changing climate? It's really undermining people's fundamental sense of security about the world. Things that we take for granted that the world will essentially continue more or less the same that, you know, the swallows will come back and that the cherry blossoms will bloom and, and things will stay approximately the same. And when we talk about climate change, we are talking about changes in all of these things. And of course, some people think about an actual it's often described as an existential crisis, the idea that our very existence might be threatened. So that, of course, is going to or we we thought, of course, is going to have a psychological impact. So then, Susan, how closely does the manifestation
3: of climate anxiety that was revealed in your most recent paper in the fall of 2021
2: match what you anticipated 10 years ago? I personally was surprised about some of those negative comments from the young people around the world. I the The degree of pessimism, I will say, has surpassed what I expected 10 years ago. And I think one manifestation of that that perhaps a lot of people can resonate to is the number of young people who are talking about wondering whether or not to have children. This is such a powerful decision. And um, the idea that people are, that people's worries about climate change are beginning to affect these very core decisions they're making about their lives. That's taken me a bit by surprise.
3: Well, you mentioned that you don't consider climate change anxiety a disorder because it is in some ways a healthy response to a real threat, not an imagined one. And I wonder if you would go so far as to welcome it as a sign of progress. Although it's causing people great distress, it it is an acknowledgement of the situation that we are facing, a widespread acknowledgement that we didn't have 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And perhaps this is a parenthetical comment, but reading about climate anxiety and the way that some therapists are trying to treat it. And I read in one case about a therapist who was trying to help patients with their guilt about consumerism. And I thought, is that an emotion you want people to feel better about? So in other words, do we want people to feel better about the future of the climate when when we
2: are facing an existential threat? You raise a very good point about um, sometimes there may be a trade off between individual happiness and what I might describe as individual coping. Individuals can maybe be happier if they ignore a lot of dangers and risks, but I don't think that that's a healthy response in the long run. So at some level, I I do think it's a sign of progress that uh, climate anxiety seems to be increasing because 20 years ago, very few people seem, and including me, I mean, uh, I wasn't as worried 20 years ago as I am now. People did not really recognize the level of threat that we were facing. And, and, and there was much more debate about whether it was a real thing or not. And I think we've, we've made progress. And uh, one impact of that progress is that we're more worried. I'm just curious if you saw the film Don't Look Up. Did you see the film? I did see the film. In fact, they talked to a number of people ahead of time to get some insight, not into directing the film, but into how to construct the, you know, there's actions that people can engage in after watching the film. And so I was one of the people who was invited to give some feedback on that. Susan, this brings us to the question of what can be done and how does a therapist
3: or psychologist treat climate anxiety? And what is the relationship
2: between climate anxiety and action or inaction about the climate great question and and those are related things um, because i want to start by stressing that i think it would be a mistake if we focused only on how to make the individual feel better how to help them cope that we really need to see this as a problem that exists within a societal context so there needs to be a societal response that doesn't mean individuals shouldn't try to to help to feel better and maybe seek help to feel better if their anxiety is overwhelming And uh, one of the most important things can be to find ways to feel more in control of the situation because climate change, I think, makes everybody feel disoriented and uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we feel like it's going to be bad. Um, So ways to get control can be to, to learn more about what's actually happening so that maybe your fears are a little bit exaggerated or just you have a better understanding so you don't feel quite so confused. And to find some way to get involved so that you can you can be an active agent none of us can solve the problem entirely on our own but by getting involved we stop just becoming you know passive recipients of whatever's happening um, and then the other thing is of course that if your emotions are really overwhelming to find ways to pull back if necessary think about mindfulness techniques go out and take walks walk out in nature all of those things that can help us Um, calm down a little bit because we all need to try to maintain emotional resilience if we're actually going to practically cope with this problem. Susan Clayton, thank you so
1: much for talking to us.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Susan Clayton is a professor of psychology at the College of Worcester.
3: Well, Seth, this brings us to the big picture moment. And what we asked at the top of the show was the question, what will motivate us to act on climate change if deadlines don't? And what we heard in the show is don't let the deadlines define your relationship to the crisis and become an excuse for futility. There's a lot we can still do. And we heard about that. And there are still a lot of reasons for hope.
1: Well, that's certainly true. I I don't know. I tend to be a pragmatist on on these things. And looking at American history, it looks like when we finally got our act in gear, it was because some part of the situation had become just too much to bear. I figure once, you know, Miami is under two feet of water, additional water, that might spur us to do something because we will see what happens. When these things affect people personally, when it becomes personal, as they don't say in The Godfather, then we take action. Americans good at taking action, but only when it becomes really necessary to do so.
3: This show is made possible due to the hard work and talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I'm executive producer of Big Picture
1: Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky, david and Sammy David and to NASA, Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, investigates the mechanisms of climate change on Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Original music in this
3: program by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science, exploring the science of and our psychological response to climate change, is called Melting Down.
1: Perhaps the fact that the people most affected by climate change are no longer some imagined future generation, but young people alive today. Perhaps that will give us the impetus we need to rewrite our story, to turn this tragedy into a triumph.